Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Just be nice. But every show I've ever done, you know, I've, it's always, they've always liked working with me. I, I've never had a problem. I know my lines. I, I'm, I'm there on time. And I do what I got to do. Bobby, you mind if we comb your hair this way? Do whatever the fuck you want with my hair. What do I give a shit? What do I care? Whatever you want to do. Well, for Joey Bishop, we'd have to cut your hair off. Give me a bald wig. I don't care. I'm not, where am I going? I'm married. I'm not getting laid. I'm not doing anything else. Where am I going? Do whatever the fuck you got to do to me. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. So glad you're here. The holiday season, you can't beat it. It's unbelievable, the energy, the excitement, the calm, but the anticipation to be with your family and your friends and all your loved ones. It's incredible. And I'm really, really happy you're with us today. I'm really happy you're here to listen to this episode, part two with Bobby Slayton. And I'm really grateful that all of you all throughout the year have been so incredibly supportive of the show. I will never stop saying it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And if you need to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz at Twitter or Instagram or go to BarryKatz.com. And when I think of Bobby Slayton, I think of a guy who's been doing it consistently at a high, high level for over 40 years. Think about that. Over 40 years, but still a guy who transcends the business, who is a liaison between the young and the medium and the old. And what he's done is nothing short of spectacular because... He was always known as the pit bull of comedy. He was always a guy who was controversial, unique, authentic, special, but oftentimes offensive. And he's not going to change for anybody. He's got to do what he does, and he doesn't want to compromise. He doesn't want to be in a position where he has to change what's won for him for 40 years. 
And when you think about it, the guy has done incredible projects with some of the greatest people in our business. In animation, Dr. Katz with Jonathan Katz and Family Guy with Seth MacFarlane. You got to think of Mind of the Married Man, which was an incredible HBO series by an extraordinary writer, producer, actor, Mike Binder. You have Comic Relief, which was the four seasons of benefit televised comedy shows, headlined by Whoopi Goldberg, Robin Williams, and Billy Crystal. You have Politically Incorrect that he did so many times with Bill Maher, who we all know is brilliant. Did The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, who was the greatest talk show host of all time. Guy did Ed Wood, Get Shorty, and has done three projects with Woody Allen, who's one of the greatest geniuses of our generation. And to top it off, He's done another project with another brilliant genius, Larry David and Curb Your Enthusiasm. So not only is his stand-up at the highest level, not only doesn't he compromise and lower his standards or lower how he does things, he still makes unique, bold, and critical choices that have, yes, cost him work, but no, they haven't cost him his integrity. And that's what's amazing about it. And if you can figure out a way to keep who you are and keep your integrity and forge on and do the things that you do best, and even if it costs you money, fight through it. Fight through that phase as best you can and keep doing what you're doing. And when you get to the other side, you'll have gained much more respect than the people who compromised along the way. And if you figure out how to do that, I can guarantee you, you'll have the kind of longevity, respected, authentic, and extraordinary career that Bobby Slayton's had. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. So when was the first time where you actually felt like, I did it, man. I've made my mark, and I'm never going to do a day job again? It was right at the time I was probably the house MC at the punchline. Because, you know, I, was, I had the record store job, and I quit, and they, the punchline was using me. And at the time, there were one-nighters all over the Bay Area. There was a club called Rooster Tea Feathers with John, John Fox. Of Is that still around? Yeah, somebody else owns it. But, you know, it was, it was one, night a, one, one night a week they did comedy. And John Fox, who, you know, helped me out, I, I think they paid uh, originally $50 a night. And then when her Dana Carvey was getting 75 or 100 I wanted 75 or 100 So it paid 50 to 100 bucks a night. And then there was another club in Santa Rosa or, or um, Santa Cruz. And so, you know, you went around and you could make, you know, four or 500 a week on a good week, you know? 
maybe three, four hundred. That was a lot of money at the time because the apartments in San Francisco weren't that much money, you know. And I, I had an inexpensive apartment on Knob Hill, so you know, yeah, you made a living. And I remember when it. I became a professional comic. Do you remember your first headlining gig where you did an hour? No, because, no, and the headliners back then didn't do an hour, as you remember. When you do, it was, it was 15 for the MC, yeah. 30 for the middle, which, you know, now they call feature act, which I never liked that term, because feature sounds like and, the main feature. And 40 to 45 for the headliner. And then the headliner would do 40 to 45. So, you know, I, and I, I remember Leno helped me out. I wanted to play Chicago. And Jay goes, oh, I'll call Rick Hewitt for you. And he called and I got a gig. Um, and I played a few other clubs, but there weren't that many clubs. And there were all these established guys that were doing it. Most of them aren't working anymore. Or you don't, you know, Denny Johnston or Bruce Baum, I think, is still around. Baby Man. And, you know, a lot of people like Michael Keaton went on to take acting and, you know, Batman. And But I was opening up for Jerry Seinfeld, who was my age. But he was so great even back then. I opened up for him a few times. Now it's odd that your kind of act he would have open up for him. I was very clean back then. You know, I wasn't... When did you make the switch? What year did you make the switch to not being clean? Well, you know what? I never really went from clean to dirty. I well, you mentioned Carlin a lot, and there's the three stages in my mind. The first was when he was wearing the suit. Yeah, I didn't like and, that stage. And that stage. And then the second was when he had the long hair right. and the hippy-dippy weatherman. Right. And the third was the shorter hair and the political comedian. Right. right. He had three phases that I see. Well, I, I think, you know, you start growing into that because, you know, the earlier stuff was great. Then George, you know, when you see all the political unrest, you see the, you know, the corporate, he hated these big corporations. And, you know, it's interesting. He never talked about his wife. He never talked about his daughter. He always kept it about your observations and taking down the big guy, which I always loved. But uh, my transition, and I don't think it was necessarily on purpose. That went from clean to dirty. What happened was I started opening for rock and roll bands at the old Waldorf next to the punchline. And Jeffrey Pollock and then Bill Graham, they used me because they know they can get a comic for $50. And Dana Carvey did it. I think Bill Rafferty and Bob Sarlat did it a little. I think Robin even did it before, you know, way before, way before Mork and Mindy. But it was Kevin Pollack, Dana Carvey. I think Paula Poundstone did it a little. I don't know who else did it, but they used me a lot because I was like a rock and roll comedian. Yeah, I think I wore that skinny tie, you know, before anybody did it. You know, I, mean, I went on, they brought me as Bobby Bronx, King of Punk Comedy, you know. Take my wife, you fucking asshole. And I do like a minute of, of you know, like dirty, uh, you know, satanic Rodney Dangerfield. You know, it was, just, it was just like a character. But when I started doing opening for bands, it was like kill or be killed. You had to go out there. Nobody was there to see you. You know, it's like that old Albert Brooks bit when he opened for Richie Havens. You know, I build and people are timing, you know, their, 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 the drugs to the headliner, yelling, Richie, Richie. It was a classic bit, but that happened a lot. And, I became established in the Bay Area as a comic, and I did a lot of radio with this guy, Alex Bennett. Alex and Bennett, Alex for those of you don't guy. know, he was a guy who, what Joe Rogan is for young comics on the podcast, Alex Bennett was for comedians in San Francisco. And if you did the Alex Bennett show, you were going to headline shows. Yes. Uh, Bob Goldthwaite came from Boston, started doing it, and took off. Well, the way Alex took off was, and now, look, it was a symbiotic relationship. It was great for the DJ, the morning personality, to have comics on the show, because that would help him, you know? 
That's when they played music too. They didn't just do talk radio. Now a lot of morning stations, as you know, are talk or total music. So you had that whole variety concept. And it, it, look, it would have happened anyway. And Alex wasn't the first person to have comics on the radio. But it started with me and Alex. Because when I was a kid in New York, Alex Bennett and even Howard Stern had said that Alex Bennett was one of his inspirations. Alex Bennett, way before Howard Stern, way before this whole shock radio thing, um, there were guys like Joe Pine and other guys that were doing it on television. And, you know, and then Morton Downey came on along later. But Alex was the first, one of the first guys, at least when I was a teenager, who in the, in, in, every night from 7 to 11 on WMCA radio would have on Eldritch Cleaver, the Black Panther, who was on, in, in, he was exiled in Algeria. Alex would talk to him on the phone. And John and Yoko would come on. And Alex would talk about pot. They should legalize it. And he talked about politics. And Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman, you know, the yippies, and this whole counterculture movement. Alex had these people on the show. And when you're 15 years old and you're coming of age and you hate school and you're smoking pot and anti-Vietnam and all that stuff, an easy rider in Woodstock, Alex was the guy. I grew up with him. So when I heard he came to San Francisco to be on Camel Radio, and I heard this, I was an established comic, and I went down to see Alex, and I told him how much I loved him. I grew up with him, and he put me on the radio, and it went great. And he said, do you know any other comics? I said, yeah, and I brought on Dana Carvey. You were the first the comedian first he oh, used, yeah. the, first the first comic he used. David Brenner went said to me years later, David Brenner said to me twice, David and I became very close friends. Brenner said to me, I'd like to kill the comic whose idea was to get up in the morning and do radio. And I said, it was my idea or Alex's idea. It was our idea because he had never had a comic on. And everything I just told you about this guy, um, and he still has a thing called GabNet. Alex is on now doing a podcast that you should watch and listen to. He has more imaginary listeners than you have. That's how big he is. <laughs> uh, but Alex, so I, I brought on other comics, and there was Kevin Pollack, there was Jeremy Kramer, there was Paula Poundstone, there was Bob Rubin, Oak Jake Johansson, whoever the hell was up there. And then they all started going on, and then finally we got Robin Williams to come on. It might have taken a year, but Robin came on, and then what Alex did was, because his father was a band leader and a musician back in the uh, 40s and 50s. I think he played with Ernie Hector at the Fairmont Hotel. And Alex always loved Jack Benny and he liked the variety shows. So Alex started doing um, his show live from the punchline and from comedy clubs. Once a month, he'd do a live show. He'd have Dick Bright, great musician who was like a Paul Schaefer, before there was Paul Schaefer even, Dick Bright would play with his band and they'd play between songs, uh, between, uh, you know, during commercials and they'd warm up the audience. It was like the Tonight Show. It was like the Tonight Show and bring on comics and you'd sit up on the, on the punchline stage and it was great. And they would, the clubs would serve beer and you go, yeah, this is not a good way to start the day. I'm sure we did a few lines of blow. There's not a good way at seven o'clock to start the day. This and, wasn't cornflakes we were having. And so the first show you did after you plugged it on Alex, was it sold out? I don't think his, just going on a show didn't necessarily sell out the show, but you gotta remember something, comedy was really big and the clubs were packed anyway. So doing Alex's show would pretty much ensure a sellout. Yeah, you know what, and then he started producing shows. So there was a, you know, the Keystone in Berkeley and the Stone down in um, Palo Alto, big clubs, and Alex would produce his own shows. And we, he'd pack them, he'd put on me, Paul Poundstone, Billy Jay, Dana Carvey, Jeremy Kramer would be a cavalcade of comics. And it was, you know, he would do that a couple of times a year. He started having a big New Year's Eve show at the Palace of Fine Arts. So doing Alex's show, if it didn't sure sell out, would certainly help tremendously, you know. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, 
and you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my blueprint for success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Six degrees of separation. All right, six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names or some no, subjects or things. By the um, way, uh, let me mention my friend Kevin Pollack again because he's done so much work. I said a brilliant, brilliant man. Three degrees of separation because he's worked with everybody in the business. Robin Williams. Well, Robin and I, you know, wow, we go way back. You know, and we spent a lot of time together in San Francisco. And what was funny is Robin did sometimes appropriate material. And I don't think he did it on purpose, but you know he'd always be paying people. And he did a joke about one of his specials, and I called up his manager, David Steinberg, one of his managers. Real manager was Larry Bresner. It's a whole other story, by the way. Why would you call up his manager? Why would Robin, you just call said, Robin up? Well, because I, I don't think Robin really knew what he was doing. You know, he did one of my jokes on SNL, and I did call him up after that. I go, you know, he did my joke last night. He goes, I'm sorry. You want me to pay for it? I go, no, but you know. It was just a line. He knew it was my line. So but then he, he, so he, he paid people for yeah, things. He, he wrote people. checks yes, I heard for he people. Paid people. I would take money from. But then on his, his Robin Williams on Broadway, he did the same joke again. And I called up David Steinberg, and I said, you know, Robin did my joke again. He goes, well, what do you want me to do? You want me to say something to Robin? You want money for it? I go, no, I was just venting my frustration. It was just one joke. And I've heard other people do it since, but it doesn't matter. But Robin and I go way back. And the reason I'm sticking up for him as far as taking jokes, I remember this happened a couple of times. We'd be at the Holy City Zoo. And I'd tell Robin a joke. Yeah, there's two Jews walking a bar, whatever the joke is. And a half an hour later, Robin would come up and tell me the joke. I go, Robin, I just told you that a half an hour ago. So, you know, his mind was a sponge. You know, it went in, and I don't think he realized that he had this childlike awe of everything. And I'm not, you know, one of the worst things. And people, you know, like Carlos Mencia, everybody steals. Now, everybody does not steal. Carlos Mencia stole jokes. Robin, I think a lot of it was not intentional. I like to think that. But he was a good friend of mine, and um, I miss him. I don't know what else I can tell you. Bill Graham. Oh, my God, Bill Graham. A lot of people don't know Bill. I just... I want you to tell our audience about Bill. Well, Bill was a fascinating man. There's a book called Bill Graham Presents. I actually did an off-Broadway show about him with Ron Silver. I can give you an idea of his life. I just read a book about Bill called Rage and Roll. The guy had a dark side, and the guy was a was the guy that wrote the book on promoting rock and roll shows, you know? And he, he helped with Woodstock, and he helped with a lot of things. And he had the Fillmore East and the Fillmore West, and he was always great to me. And if Bill didn't like you, you know, you heard about it. But he was always great to me. And one of the great stories was he loved the Rolling Stones more than anything in the world. And when the Stones left him to go to the Michael Cole to produce their shows, I know that hurt Bill tremendously, but that's a whole other story. But I do remember... When I went to see the Stones at Madison Square Garden back in the early 80s, I had backstage passes. 
And, you know, Bill Graham was there. And Bill came out and watched the show with me and sat there watching the show like a fan. And after the show was over, I went backstage thinking, oh, it's great. The Stones will be back. They're partying. Everybody was gone. And there was Bill Graham with a broom sweeping up. You know, and I don't know why he was doing that. I'm sure he didn't have to do that. But he was just a fascinating human being. I worked from the night he died. I was at the punchline the night he died. It was really tough. You worked with him or you I worked, worked I worked the, for him. He came to see wait, me. Wait, you few, worked with him the night he died? No, no, no. He, he owned the Punchline Comedy Club because he owned Old Waldorf next door. And Bill would come see me. He wouldn't see a lot of comedians. As a matter of fact, Robin Williams, somebody told me, um, I think, I forgot who told me, somebody works for Bill. Robin said he was always at Bill's funeral. I couldn't go because I was on the road. But Robin Williams said to somebody, he was always pissed that I was Bill's favorite comic and not him. And that made me feel good. But Bill died in a helicopter crash. On the way to go back from the Huey Lewis show with the comic. So he going, saw your show, he got in a show, helicopter no, and went and died? No, he, he saw my show, I think, the week before. Oh, got it. Uh, or that week he saw my show. That week he saw my and show. And the helicopter hit power lines, right? Yeah, he definitely went to see my show a few nights before. And Bill was haunted by the Holocaust. You know, he grew up an orphan. He had a very scary, trying, nightmare childhood. He came to this country not speaking English. His family died in the Holocaust. So he, he, Bill had a lot of issues. And he'd come to see my show. as one of the few comics he'd come to see. And it was a thrill for me when Bill Graham came. And a few nights later, because I remember I was in the Fairmont Hotel. They called me at 7 o'clock in the morning. Bill died last night in a helicopter crash. He came back from the Huey Lewis show. And, um, you know, they should not have flown that night. Everybody told them not to fly, and they did. And then the storm came in. They thought they beat the storm or something. And they, right by Altamont, right on the way to Bill's house from Marin, and they hit it. And, yeah, you know, that was just awful because I loved that guy. He was just great to me. And I told you, I hosted the Bambies, the Bay Area Music Awards one year. I don't want to go into this whole story. It's going to be in my book. My imaginary book, and all your imaginary listeners will buy this book. But... Um, I hosted, it was like the Grammys, and it was all Bay Area people, and Santana, the Doobie Brothers, and Quicksilver, and Joe Baez, and there was a lesbian record company, and there was Mimi Farina, and there was uh, the Journey, and there was uh, members of the Dead, and it was just, and anyway, I hosted the show, made fun of Journey, they got pissed, started throwing shit at me, corks, and champagne bottles, whatever they were throwing. They threw, cork, they they threw corky at they you. They threw corks, yeah, corky, they threw corky at me. They, um, they, um, Anyway, I showed you that picture of my office. We're taking pictures afterwards of Huey Lewis and Greg Kidd and Quicksilver and whoever was there, Santana. And, uh, and, and I was getting heckled by Journey and I gave him the finger. And I was with Bill Graham and he sent me that picture that says nobody ever said it was going to be easy. And that's what makes this business what it is. And he framed it and he sent it to me and it's one of my prized possessions. You don't see anything in my house with uh, you know awards, although I have plenty of them. Uh, but I don't have stuff around my house that would lead you to believe I'm in show business. You know, if I won an Oscar, which I should, because according to Barry, I'm a great actor. <laughs> Nobody else seems to know that, but him and my mother. <laughs> but I guess I would put it on my mantle next to the picture of my late dog Gizmo. But I don't think anything else would be in my house. Everything else is in my little man cave downstairs. Seth MacFarlane. I love Seth MacFarlane. He put me on Family Guy. Matter of fact, you know. <laughs> it was, to show you what a genius this guy is and what an idiot I am. 
I used to do a lot of voiceover work, and this really dried up because most voiceover work now is a handful of guys or big famous celebrities. So I used to do a lot of commercials, and I, I, I did some animated stuff. I think I played a polar bear in a McDonald's commercial, and I, <laughs> I played, I, I did a lot of uh, Disney stuff. Not a lot of stuff, but, but enough. So I was on the road a lot back in those days. It was before Family Guy was uh -huh. even on TV. Family mm -hmm. Guy was about to come on TV. Okay. And I get a call from my agent, can you come in tomorrow morning and read for this new animated show. And I said, you know, I'm sick, it's pouring outside, I'm leaving tomorrow afternoon to go back on the road for somewhere. And, and you know what, I just didn't want to do it. I was working enough, and there's so many of the auditions you don't get. I said, can't you just send them my voice tape? And I, I, I just, you know, I'd, I've never turned down anything, but I really was under the weather. And the weather was shitty, and I was leaving the next day again to go back out of the room. And my agent calls me up and goes, this guy Seth MacFarlane really would love you to come in. I said, I don't want to commit. They said, well, you know what? You could do it over the phone. Yeah, I will tape it. So I do it over the phone. I read for the part. And they give it to me. It was as Indian chief. I ran a casino. So I go in to a do Native the part. A Native American chief. What's that? A Native American chief. Native American. Ooh, Native American. Right. Unless they want your money. Then they're fucking Indians. Indian casino. You don't see these, these guys calling it the, the, yeah, the Native American casino. Ooh, when they want your wampum. Yeah, then they call it. And then you do a rain dance, so you can't play golf and you have to sit at the tables. They know what they're doing. Those Redskins. They don't like the name of the Redskins. They don't like the Tomahawk Chop. But they're taking the money. We're fucking Indians. Fuck you. Okay, Tonto. Anyway, so. <laughs> Jesus Christ. You know who I really don't like? Retarded Indians. <laughs> Chinese retarded Indians who marry blacks. So anyway, so Seth MacFarlane has me in. We're in the studio. And he's doing the voice of the kid. Uh, what else does he do? Does he do the dog? And he's doing all these voices. And I'm doing the Indian chief. And I'm doing my part. And he's playing all the parts. I mean, this show's so stupid. It's never going to go anywhere. And then it, Family Guy comes out. And people talk about how brilliant it is. And I watch an episode. I go, see, okay, well, it seemed pretty good. I don't really get it. Watch another episode. and go, wow, this is really funny. Then I watch another episode. The one I'm on. I go, this is the best show in the history of, of, of television. And... I never thought, that's why I don't have the foresight to see greatness. And Seth MacFarlane, you watch the show, and it's, I thought the same thing about The Simpsons. It took me a year or two to watch these idiot Simpsons. And then you watch two or three episodes, you go, my God, it's brilliant. So that's Seth MacFarlane. Then I ran into him a couple of years later. I said, you need to do a spinoff with me. You need to do a spinoff with the Indian chief. And he couldn't, because he had to call it to Corky. Off the top of your head. Yeah. Like everything has been so far, yes. The list of some of your greatest opening acts for oh you God. headlining. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Well, when I used to play Rascals in New Jersey, a couple of times Ray Romano opened for me. And that had to be... That had to be... Let me take a sip of water here. Ray Romano, we had, that got to be in the 70s or 80s. I'd say the 80s. Great, great actor. Okay, the 80s. Ray Romano opened for me a couple of times. He was great back then. Young comic. <laughs> Who else? Irvine Improv a few times, David Spade, um, Judd Apatow. <clears throat> I remember playing a club, a John Fox gig, a couple of gigs. I don't know if we did the punchline or just a few gigs around town. Roseanne Barr opened up me. She was great. She was great. I was sitting in my car after the show. I'm giving a ride back to our motel. And she said, yeah, I'm thinking about moving to L.A., and you know, doing this full time. And I said, well, you're really great. She said, yeah, I'd like to get a show someday. And she did. 
Then in New Orleans, Baton Rouge had a comedy club. Ellen DeGeneres, who I thought was brilliant. I mean, she was a young, young comic. That had to be the 80s, maybe the 90s. I was married to my wife at the time. My wife was with me. And I didn't get married until 86, 87. So I'd be in the late 80s. You know, and so she opened up for me. She was great. Uh, Pat Oswald, who I always loved, was great. Who, my God, I watched. There's another guy. I'm sorry I forgot to mention him, but another guy I watched who I think is terrific. Eliza Schlesinger, I like her. And your ex-client, Whitney Cummings. I mean, people, you know, we ask who I like. I can't think of all these people, but they're, who else opened up for me? Oh, my God, the list goes on and on and on. Um, oh, my God. Have you ever had a situation in your career where you were on a show, it might have been a showcase, a lot of comics on, or uh, or an opening act or somebody, and they go on and they have that set that's like the greatest set of the history of their career. Which every great comic has done. And you have a hard time following it. Um, probably. I, I don't really remember. You know, I always had a thing about following. I always hated, like when I played the improv, I always hated going out late and following. There were so many good comics. And I don't know if I followed a guy that did the greatest um, show of his life. But, you know, one of the reasons for 25 years I hosted the Nasty Show at the world-famous Montreal Comedy Festival. The reason 25 I years that, in a row you huh? hosted. Well, I did it about 27, 28 years. Uh, one year I said I didn't want to do it because I was getting sick of it. Jeff Russ did it. And then I think Nick DiPaolo did it. And then they realized we don't need Bobby every year. And they used a few other people. They used... Uh, 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 Brad, you know, uh, Brad Williams. Brad, I love Brad Williams. Um, and then he did it one year. But I did it for 25 years. <clears throat> and the reason I did it, uh, Dom Herrera hosted the, it wasn't called the Nasty Show, I think it was called the, the, the Danger Zone. And it evolved into the Nasty Show. And they wanted me to headline it, like the first or second year. And I said, I don't want to follow Dom Herrera and Robert Schimmel and Louis C.K. and whoever the hell they were using back then, you know, Joe Rogan. You know, a lot of guys that went out to greatness, a lot of guys that died, you know, and I, I didn't want to, so I said, let me host the show. I became the host of the Nasty Show. So that was one of the reasons I started to host is I didn't like following all these people. I want to go on kill. Then, then if somebody killed, which they all did, I could do two or three minutes between each comic. But I'm sure I followed people that had the, you know, I, I did make the mistake one year. Oh my God, one time. It was a nightmare. I can't believe I did this. And I think because I did a few lines of Coke and I was drinking. I'm a catcher rising star in New York. And I was a big comic in San Francisco. <clears throat> Excuse me, big comic in San Francisco. And I wasn't really very well known in New York. Mm -hmm. And I was going on late one night. And, uh, you know, the show was going pretty well. And Robin Williams came in and went on. One o'clock in the morning, destroyed for 20 minutes. They said to me, you still want to go on? I said, yeah, I think between the vodka and the Coke, I went on and I died a brutal death following Robert. I don't think there was a laugh. I don't think I was very good. I don't think the drugs and alcohol helped. But even if I was sober, that was, that was a stupid move, you know. So that's the one I, that stands out. The Gong Show. Oh, my God. I went on the, that was my first major television show. I went on the Gong Show with my friend David Castro, who actually wrote the act. He went out to become a comedy writer. We, um, at the time, it's also when cloning was big. We went on as a Lone Ranger and Clone Ranger. We dressed exactly alike on those little stick horses. I went out and we did 30 impressions in a minute. We did the world's first two-man, one-man show. I got to give David credit for writing all of this because I did not write it. Before or after the unknown comic? Oh, no, no, the unknown comic is one of the judges. And it was J.P. Morgan, 
Pat McCormick, who wrote for The Tonight Show, and the unknown comic, and we won. And the reason we won was because the three of them were comedians and comedy writers and comic actors, and they knew comedy. You know, they had some judges who didn't really... You know, we tied for first place with a woman who did this treacly feeling, you know, some kind of Barbara Streisand, Linda Rodstead song, and she was terrific, but that's not what the gong show was all about. You know, it wasn't America's Got Talent. This was about being wacky. We were wacky, but smart. We did, um, I remember we did uh, Guy Lombardo, and we, we lit off a little uh, party popper, and we did all kinds of dumb stuff. You know, 30 impressions in a minute, and we won, and we both got the trophy. Then, what happens on the gong show, like all talk shows, or variety shows, or game shows, people don't know this. When you win a car on these shows, or <laughs> a kitchen set, a lot of people can't afford to keep it, because you're paying tax. So if you got a $5,000 car, you're not only paying 1000 1500 in taxes, you're paying game show tax and California tax. And a lot of people have to take the small consolation prize of money because, you know, you don't want to pay the, you know, you can't afford to pay the tax on your new dining room center, your Hawaii vacation. So it's a gong show. And what we win is a bunch of crap. Okay. I won a rug shampooer, which <laughs> I gave to a friend because I didn't have a rug. I won uh, 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 $1,000 worth of turtle wax, which I gave to friends because I didn't have a car. I won a, um, oh, oh, a couple hundred dollars coupon for some frozen shrimp, which wasn't available in California grocery stores. I sent it to my mother, and so she could have the shrimp. There were two or three other prizes that I had no use for, you know, because I didn't have a carpet, and I didn't have a car. So I get a thing in the mail from the IRS, you know, I won $800 worth of prizes. That was the total. It wasn't, I was exaggerating. Won $800 worth of prizes, and I owe $300 in taxes. And back then, that was a lot of money for me. It was the 70s. I didn't have $300. I didn't keep any of the prizes. I'm not paying this. A few months later, I got another warning from the IRS. Yo, taxes. I didn't see any reason to pay taxes on prizes. I did not keep. <clears throat> of course, years later, when I finally got audited, when I finally had an accountant, they said, you owe the IRS like 1200 bucks <laughs> because you never paid. So I go, okay, I paid like $1,200 in taxes on $800 worth of shit I didn't keep. Wow. <clears throat> and I donated my gun show trophy to um, a guy named James Commissar, who has one of the world's greatest memorabilia collections. He has a curtain from The Tonight Show. He has a full TV, you know, a collection he wants over to a museum. He has Johnny Carson's turban from Karnak. I have three cue cards from The Tonight Show with the last Fechner joke. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. But anyway, James Commissar, who's a collector, I gave him uh, that stuff, and awesome. he gave me a couple of cool things uh, that I have in my house. You're very I'm a creature from Critters, the monster movie. You know Critters? <laughs> I have one in my kitchen. I have a critter, and he gave my girl, my my daughter, a uh, a knife from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, one used on the show, my daughter's favorite show, and one of the greatest shows of all time. So there's my gong show story. Your first television pilot your first shot at acting with a show based around you my first television show oh my god this is a great this is a great story jimmy comac james comac who was a broadway actor who went on to create produce courtship of eddie's father welcome back connor which of course made john travolta big star chico and the man which made freddie prince a big star and a few other shows i mean i think that's enough right there he was a major tv producer and director and writer so he had been retired for a year or two, and Jimmy came to see me at Igby's. Remember Igby's Comedy Club? Of course. Came to see me at Igby's, and he thought I was the greatest comic. He loved me. He went crazy over my routine. And he said, I'm doing a pilot. You would be perfect for the lead. It's for CBS. 
and I'm going, this is great. This is early 80s, uh, mid 80s, 80, I don't know, 86, 87, I don't know, something like that. This was before my daughter was born. She was born in 88, so somewhere around there. Anyway, I went in to read for him and his uh, producer, writer, Barry Vigon, and I was a terrible actor. Terrible. It was actually a perfect part for me. It was a head of an, it was a doorman of an apartment building. It's called King of the Building. It's a high-end uh, apartment building in New York. And you, I was a doorman. A lot like Sergeant Bilko, a con man. You want this? Let me get you this. It can be a couple of bucks. You know, whatever. You know, and it was written perfectly for a guy like me if I could act better. And I couldn't. And they had me in. And they wanted me on the show so badly that both Barry and Jimmy said, if we send you to the network, you know, you're never going to get this. The show's never going to go. So they gave it to Richard Lewis. And they wrote another part for me where I was the, um, I was the elevator operator. The, the pilot called King of the Building, you can still see it. It's still online somewhere. I watched it the other day. Not that bad. I wasn't that good, but the pilot's not that bad. And Richard Lewis is a tremendous actor as well. Right, but he wasn't perfect for the part. He was great. Richard's grown, tremendous actor. But they kept changing the script on him every day. They kept rewriting it. I think they were driving Richard a little crazy. And um, anyway, I went in with um, my part. They, they were, there were three actors. You went in to read for the network. You know, they always had three actors. And they put these two actors in that they knew weren't any good. They weren't going to get it. So they were. I was insured of getting this role. And I got it. And it wasn't a big part. But I think I would have learned how to act if I would have had, if the show would have went on. And you know what? It wasn't a great, great show. But as you know, back then, I don't think they do it so much anymore. They made like, what, 75 pilots a year back then? Or a tremendous amount of pilots. Only three or four of them, four or five of them would get picked up. There wasn't that much room on their schedule. And uh, ours did not get picked up because a new president came in and nixed all the pilots or something. So, Your first wife. My first wife? My first wife. My only wife, Teddy. Uh, well, she passed away three, four years ago. Um, she was hit by a car in Mexico. Died at a hospital here in the States from complications. And uh, when so she you, died... Were you with her in Mexico? I was with her, yeah. So I you were on... I pushed her in front of the car. So, yeah. you, I was, my, so I, you were on vacation with her in Mexico. Were you with her when she got hit by the car? I was with her when she got hit by the car, and I was walking in front of her. If I was a gentleman, I was walking behind her, I would have been hit by the car. Now, isn't there... I know this is an emotional story, but I heard that there's something... There's a protocol when walking on the street in Mexico or walking across the street to worry about drivers, I thought. Is it, am, I, am I wrong? Well, no, the town we were in, San Miguel de Allende, uh, it's cobblestone streets, and there's no stop signs, and there's no lights. It's a nice, quaint, cool little town. And people just kind of, well, I got here first. And, you know, I, I don't know how people with no, with no stop signs and with no, with no traffic lights I mean, can you imagine if this was in uh, Chinatown with the fucking Asians driving? Oh, my God. Would have been worse. But people kind of, you know, slow down and you go first. And I, I don't understand how it works. But there's always, you know, little traffic jams. And you're supposed to stop for pedestrians. But we um, were walking across the street very slowly. And sometimes I'd walk in front of her because she was such a slow walker. I didn't, I know, I, I would wait for her. I wouldn't walk in front of her all the time. We just happened to be you know, going across the street. A guy came around the corner really, really slow, actually, an American, expat, really slowly. I just tapped her. But she um, she fell to the curb and broke her hip. And then um, 
and then she uh, to get her back from Mexico to spend a week in a Mexican hospital. It was, oh, it was pretty bad. Oh my god! But she got back, and there were a lot of complications. And it was a pain in the ass. It was really not easy. And then she passed away at one of the hospitals, like I said, because of complications of a broken hip. Yeah, well, that happens a lot to people. You know, your parents or grandparents, when they said, you know, you get pneumonia, you, they died. You got a broken hip in the old days. You know, the medicine and, and those things. But this is today. This is today's medicine. Today, you'd be surprised how many people, right before my wife, right after my wife, or before, way after, Patty Duke died from the same thing, from sepsis. A lot of people, when you're in the hospital, you contract sepsis and pneumonia. A lot of people die. This is a common thing, even in hospitals today, the finest hospitals. Um, but I mean, you're in the hospital with your wife. She broke her hip. Breaks her hip at the she Mexican had, hospital yeah. to get her out of there. But I mean, she and you, the last thing you're thinking is, well, this could be the end of her life because of this broken hip. Oh, no, no, it didn't cross. No, but that happens for a lot of people. No, I'll tell you what happened was that um, I think she contracted pneumonia in Mexico. We didn't know this. We get, I get her home and she's in bed. And my, my poor, I've had such a bad back already. And uh, from, from scoliosis as a child, so she always had back problems and neck problems. And, you know, it was, so it, it was tough enough. And then, so when she broke the hip, I had her in bed and she had a walker and it was really tough. She was, she was in a lot of pain. And I found out later when they did the hip surgery, it wasn't done perfectly right. The doctor I brought her to said, we're going to probably have to redo that in a couple of years, which I didn't tell her. She didn't need to hear this. Anyway, she passes out, and they rushed her to the hospital, and she almost died. And the doctor called me at midnight and said, uh, you know, your wife's going to have to stay here for like a week. And um, she was fine. I mean, not fine, fine, but there was no... Anyway, I had to go back on the road. Here, oh, oh, this is a great story. I had to do a TV show with Woody Allen called Crisis in Six Scenes. This is the first time I worked with Woody Allen. And Woody and I knew each other. He, uh, I, I had dinner with him a bunch of times in New York at a friend's house. And everybody said to me, oh, Woody will put you in something eventually. Meanwhile, he made four more movies, never put me in anything, and I get a call out of the blue. He's doing a thing, Crisis in Six Scenes for Amazon Prime. Elaine May came out of retirement, used Louis Black for a great scene, used Judy Gold for a great scene, and he gave me a tremendous scene, seven pages. I went to two acting coaches. Both acting coaches said to me, in their own words, this is gonna be hard enough for a real actor. I'm not sure how you're gonna pull this off. <laughs> so much for your accolades about my acting experience, Barry. So they said, well, you know, Bobby. He used you again, didn't he? You, yeah, And times. again. But, but, uh, but, but the thing was, and the acting coaches said, this is gonna be really hard, but now, you know, I think you can do it. The scene was so long. It's me and Woody sitting at a, a, in a diner and, um, it, you know, you can see it now. It's still on, on, on Amazon Prime. But Woody is so detached. He has, he's paranoid talking to himself. So it's not like having a conversation. You know, when you act, Barry, how are you? And you're waiting for your answer. But he's all over the place. So I'm basically talking to myself. It's a running monologue. We're eating lunch. It's seven pages long. I had two months to work on this. And thank God I didn't have to film it the next week. My wife's home in bed. She's sick. I put her in a nursing home because I had to go on the road for a week. I had to do a gig. We, I wasn't making any money. I was broke for like a year. And I had to take this gig. I had somebody watching, my, my wife, you know, my daughter was watching her, a friend was watching her. She's in the nursing home. And I come back and, you know, she was fine. Um, anyway, so I'm working on this scene 
every day and all night. And the one nice thing about having my wife in the hospital was when I was here in my house, I had no distractions. I would sit in the jacuzzi, I would shower, I'd wake up in the middle of the night, I would write down the scene, I worked on it with some acting coaches, I worked on it with a few actors, I taped it, and I'm working on this day. I worked on this scene every day, like I was shooting it the next day. I made myself crazy for, for over a month with this scene. Okay, anyway, my wife passes away very difficult and I thought it just this wasn't the first thing on my mind but I realized when my wife died so was my act because my act 70% of it was about being married you know I couldn't do my act anymore that wasn't the first thing on my mind but that was almost like when Vaughn Meter the guy that did the impression of Kennedy you know that was his whole career and Lenny Bruce said you know the day after what I say he said Vaughn Meter's career is over because that's all he had anyway so I went to New York my wife had been gone three weeks, two, three weeks. And I'm in New York, went in a week early to do this thing for Woody. And it was even more difficult because my wife had just died. And the great thing about working for Woody and being in New York for a few days was it was clearing my head. But at the same time, I'd walk by a store, I'd hear a song that she liked, I'd go to a restaurant we both ate at, you know, and it was really emotional. It was really, really tough. So it was this thing where, oh my God, I'm in New York, I'm away from my wife, she's gone, but I'm working with Woody, I'm gonna go have a drink at this martini bar, and then a song would come on the radio, it would remind me of my wife. So it was like this, it was a crazy week. And I said to myself, I'm not gonna say a word to Woody about this, because, you know, he's doing the show for Amazon, he's writing it, starring in it, and directing it. He doesn't need, I don't need to tell him about my wife. So we shoot the first scene, and it's not the big scene. It's us coming out of a building after pitching a TV show. And Woody says to me, before we do anything, I'm on the set with him for two minutes. He says, uh, how's your wife? I go, well, it's a long story. I know, I've been there. I know, I know. I go, well, she died last week. <laughs> I blurted it out. But it's, it's going to be good. I get my mind off it. It's fine. I'm sorry I brought it up. How does he react? It, you know, I should have said it. it was, we just got right back to work, you know. And we got into it, and you know, I, I didn't say anything else. And, you know, I think it's really concentrating on directing, acting, and writing. So I don't think it was, you know. But I, I promised myself I wouldn't say a thing to him about this. Um, so my wife passed away, and well, here's the best part of the story. If this is, I mean, as long as you brought it up, uh, three months before my wife died, before I took her to Mexico. I went to speak at the service for Larry Bresner. Did you know who Larry Bresner was? Yes, David Steinberg and Larry Bresner. They managed Robin Williams and uh, Billy Crystal. Yeah, well, Larry pretty much discovered Billy Crystal. And Larry managed Robin for 40 years. And then David came along after that. But they were both partners. You know, it was originally Rollins and Jaffe. Then Rollins and Jaffe. Bresner, Steinberg, Buddy Mora, rather. You know. And so, Jack Rollins uh, managed Letterman. Right. So Jack Rollins and, and, and Jack Rollins and uh, uh, Jaff, Jaffe. And anyway, like I said, then it was, you know, Buddy Mora, Larry, and then David. For the audience, Rollins and Joffrey were the premier oh God, managers what? in the world of comedy. And then I'd say right after that, Bernie Brillstein. Well, definitely Bernie, oh, without a doubt. But Bernie came after. Right. Well, they had. Well, they had. I remember one time they had Robin and Woody and Letterman, Robert Klein, um, um, a bunch of other people I'm, I'm missing here. Melissa Manchester, who Larry Bresner was married to for a while. Anyway, so Larry, for years, you know, was a good friend of mine. Um, 
And I didn't see him that often because, you know, it's like show business. I think you and I said, hey, we should get together have lunch, you know. Howard Lapidus, you know, you knew Howard. Of course. I would see Howard every year, another manager who managed a lot of people. I'd see Howard all the time at the comedy festival. And Howard would say to me, we should have lunch because his office was right down the street from me. He lived right, right, right around the corner. I loved Howard. And I never, yeah, I never, we never had lunch because I got back, I'm on the road, you're busy, you know. I see Howard in Gelson's a few months ago. And he go, you know, you and I have always, the grocery store at the bottom of the hill, said, we're always talking about lunch. He goes, what are you doing tomorrow? I said, nothing. We had lunch. Howard passed away a month later, you know. So, you know, shit happens. Anyway, so Larry, when he passed away from leukemia, very healthy guy, it was a shock. And his widow called me up, or his secretary, Judy, said, his widow, Dominique, wants to know if you want to speak at the funeral. It turns out, and I didn't know this, but I was Larry's favorite comic. I mean, he managed Robin and Billy, but I was his favorite comic. Larry would come see me all the time. Matter of fact, my manager, Sherry Marsh, was with their company for a very short time, and even they couldn't do anything for me. Nobody could do anything for Bobby Slayton. Um, no more quirky jokes, but they could do anything for Bobby Slayton. Anyway, I saw Larry a few months before he passed away. We had, we had sushi up at the Glen here, and we had a great time reminiscing. So I go to speak at the service, and Billy Crystal went on, and then... And, and, um, Mike Binder went on, and John Lovitz went on, and Martin Short, and Rob Reiner, a couple of family friends. And I go on way at the end, after like an hour and a half, right before Larry's brother, I think, closed it out or something. And it was like a show. And I said to his widow after, what do you put me on the end for? We have all these great comics. How, how come I have to go on and follow all these? And these guys are killing, you know? They're killing it, because that's what it's all about. And uh, she said, because Larry, you were Larry's favorite comic. And she said, you and your wife want to come back to the house? And they live right in the area. And we went back, you know, what Jews do, and put all the food out. And Billy was there, and George Schlatter, and, a, you know, a few other people. And it was a nice little get-together. And um, my wife died three months later. And I called him his widow, and he invited, I had a big party at the house right here. I didn't want to have a funeral. My wife decorated this house. She did most of this stuff. You complimented me on 80% of this stuff except for a few of the skulls and monsters, <laughs> was all my wife. When she passed away, I brought in some of the monsters. Although she loved the gremlins by the fireplace. You have to get a shot of that. She loved the skull lamp. But some of the stuff I, I put in. Anyway, so um, she couldn't make it, uh, his widow. And um, that was in May, uh, f four years ago, this coming May, that my wife passed and we had the party. And a few months later, I took his widow, uh, Dominique, uh, up to Vibrato for a drink, and then we went to my favorite restaurant, Rayo's. First of all, Vibrato, for those you don't know, is owned by Herb Albert. Herb Albert. It's the premier jazz. It's beautiful. I guess torch singing. Yes. Kind so, of. Marlon plays up there. Kind of uh, environment. It's incredible. It's Isn't at the it top great? of Willow Glen right here it's, it's in great. L.A. It's if you've never been there and you come to L.A. You're from here. You got to go. It's well, incredible. It's expensive, but it's worth it. You know what's and great? And then the restaurant. Oh, go, go no, but what, what's great about this little shopping center, look, in L.A., we talk about where you live. You have that great restaurant, right? right? Can the you Sunset Restaurant, okay. yeah. The fact you can walk anywhere in L.A. and have a nice place. It's so the one thing I hate about this town is basically you have to have a car. Yeah. And Vibrato and the Beverly Glen Center with a great deli, a great little market, great yeah. wine shop. It's literally three minutes from my house. So I don't spend a lot of time up there. I'd be broke. But it's nice to know if you want to get a quick little meal, if you want to get a, a great bagels and lunch, you want to get a great bottle of wine, you want to get you know Chinese food, it's right there. And sushi. So yeah, it's a great sushi place. And anyway, the Italian place too. Segreto. Yeah. I just went there for the first time. Unbelievable. Now you just said Ray's because I don't Rayo's. know. Where's that? Okay, Rayo's. 
is in Hollywood. You never to Rayo's in New York? It's a restaurant you can't get into. It has 12 tables. Because casual. I'm a Jew. You can't so. get into Rayo's in New York. Like Il Molino, which was next Il to Il my club. Il Molino is a lot easier. Il Molino is a lot easier to get into. Rayo's uh, does not take reservations, does not have a phone number, cash only, no <laughs> menu, not open on weekends. So how do you get in? You have to know people. You have to, or be very, very <laughs> Or do you lucky. walk in line? you just wait there and like... You, it's way up in Harlem in a little corner. You don't walk by Rayo's. And it's an amazing... Red sauce, Italian joint from the 1930s. Rayo's sauce, you've seen but it But there's one story. here. Well, they opened up, you've seen their sauce, Rayo's. Yeah. Okay, um, it's just a great, great little place. They opened up in Vegas, and I became friends with the family, the Pellegrinos, so when I went to So New there's York, hope for me, is what you're saying. Not for you, no, no, no. Okay, so you know, keep Bernie, going with if, it. If Bernie Brillstein was alive, he could get it. If Howard <laughs> Lapidus was alive, he could get it. Corky can get it. You, not so much. <laughs> so keep going with your story here now, so. Okay. Anyway, we met for a drink, and I mentioned Rayo's, and, and Dominique said, I, you know, Larry's widow, I always wanted to go to Rayo's. Okay. She told me, this is a great, great story. She told me when she met Larry, their first date was at um, the Palm. And Larry's caricature, never to the Palm, there's caricatures of all these famous Yeah, it's a celebrities. famous place in Hollywood. All the caricatures are on the wall. Right. Well, the original one's in New York, and now they're a chain, but it was in Hollywood. So... They sat at a booth underneath Larry's caricature. It's his table, and she didn't really know who he was. And people are coming up and kissing his ring. It's Larry Bresner. And she goes, who is this guy? Was sitting underneath his picture. She thought it was kind of odd and creepy, but anyway, they wound up getting married. It was funny. She told me the story. She tells me the story on the way to Rayo's. And I made sure that when we got to Rayo's, we were sitting underneath my picture. So we go to Rayo's, and I said, by the way, that story you told me about your late husband, you know, it's weird how he had to sit under his picture. I'm like, I just want to let you know that I don't go to any restaurant where my picture's not on the wall. I have to sit. She didn't even notice my picture. It was, it was a cover from some magazine. So my picture, because I was a lot like Larry. We only eat in places where our picture's on the wall. We have to sit under the picture. But that night, and I'm not exaggerating, we had a crazy fucking Uber driver. The guy was insane. And when we went back to her house, we drive down the driveway. She had to call the police on this guy. He finally left. The police wouldn't come. She had to dial 911. I was stuck behind this gate with this guy. This is our first date. And I dropped her off. I thought I was going to die. Did you think it was a date? Did she think it was a date? Or? She kept telling me it's not a date. She kept saying it's not a date. Yeah, I and I, I said, it's not a date. I said, I just think since you're Larry's widow, that I should take you out and you know we should have a drink but when we had the drink up in Vibrato my brother was sleeping on my couch my brother was visiting and it was good because I went on the road for a few months and he had to take care of my dog because my wife wasn't here and my daughter wasn't here she moved out but anyway I came back after that drink in Vibrato and I said to my brother after sitting with Dominique for an hour having a drink I think I just fell in love and my brother said, what, are you crazy? Your wife's been gone for four or five months. I go, I didn't want to do this again, but I think I just fell in love with Larry Bresner's widow. And, um, and I told her that. I didn't tell her at Rayo's, but I think I told her right after that. She thought I was out of my fucking mind. Then I told her for months. I said, well, I know you're going to fall in love with me, and I just know that you're going to be together with me, for, if not for the rest of our lives, but for a long time. And we've been together now for uh, three and a half years. What was the moment where she finally gave in? I bought her a car. <laughs> no, no, no. She just... It, you got her it, it, signed it, autograph picture of Corky? Yeah, yeah, I knew you were going to do a joke about him. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I knew. But I knew, you know, and the funny thing is, is that we get along. I mean, she loved her husband and I loved my wife. We get along better with each other. You know, we're perfect for each other. And it's... it's and the thing is crazy is I live here and she lives five minutes 
well, let's see, Vibrato's five minutes up the hill, and she's four or five minutes from there. She's literally seven, eight minutes at the most from my house. Traffic, maybe 10. So eventually we're going to live together. But in L.A., to have your girlfriend, if she lived in Santa Monica, this never would have happened. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Strangest question I've ever asked anybody in my life. If Larry and your wife could come down to earth for one moment and they could say a comment about both of your relationship, what would they say? I don't know what he would say, but I think my wife would say to Dominique, you poor woman. (laughs) He's your problem now. I'm in heaven, you're in hell. (laughs) (laughs) I think Larry would be very happy for both of us, you know, and he loved Cuban music, so when we're sitting by the fire, Cuban music comes on Pandora. Dominique always goes, that's Larry, you know. It's great. I mean, I, you know, the whole thing's very odd, very weird, you know. And then I thought, well, people say, well, it's kind of a bounce back thing. You think you fell in love. I go, no, no, me and Dominique, there's her name right there. There's my late you wife. You tattooed right her there. name across your. And there's my wife right there, Teddy. And there's Dominique right there. On both forearms. She doesn't have a me. tattoo of you anywhere. Not yet. But she said to me, what if this doesn't work out? And I said, well, I left room under your name for is a cunt. (laughs) So I'm I'm covered. Your proudest moment in show business. I think when I got the Johnny, did the Johnny Carson show my one and only time, you know. Did he give you the okay or no? Oh yeah, big time. And and well, why was, did you do it one time then? Because he retired. Oh okay, sorry. Okay, there's another great story. <laughs> I get more great stories than anybody. With somebody who's a nobody, I have the best great stories. Okay, so everybody, all You're my not peers, a nobody. All my friends wanted to do. With the, uh, let me back up for a second. This is why I'm on his podcast because he's run out of people. When I did, when I did the 11th annual. Young Comedian Special, 11th. Who okay. was hosting that one? Uh, John Larroquette. God, and who was okay. on that with you? I'm trying to remember, but the first three or four is Rodney Dangerfield hosted them. And then no, they're... Rodney hosted every other one. Oh, is it every other one? Okay. Like well, Gary Shandling I it, hosted I he, one? I think, I think he stopped hosting after five or six, but um, 
with me was uh, Margaret Smith, who I loved. I don't know where she is anymore. Rick Dukeman, who passed away. Uh, Jeff Bolt, who was very funny. Alan Havey, still working, who's great. Of course. Uh, Billy, one of the greatest comics. Right. Another guy who started out with me, who I love, who still works a lot. Uh, brilliant guy. Uh, and I think that was it. Might have been one other person. But that was okay. So John Larroquette hosted. <clears throat> when I got it, when they did, if you look at the, and I looked at it recently, the first four or five Young Comedian Specials, it was all people like, you know, it was whoever was big at the time were becoming big, you know, Dennis Miller and Bill Maher and Jerry Seinfeld, Larry Miller, whoever it was. So I understand why I didn't get the first three or four. And then by the time they got to five or six Young Comedian Special, I go, I'm definitely going to get the next one. And then there were some other people who were kind of sketchy. I go, well, okay. Well, okay, well, Norm McDonald's kind of big and Kevin, I, I don't remember who did them. But then when they got to eight or nine, I'm going, well, why did this person get it? I'm better than them, been around longer than them. I should have been on the special. By the time they got to number 11, they'd run out of people. I don't think Corky was in the business yet or he would have got one. Corky would have, would have been like four. So he was definitely not available. So basically they had to put me in one because when I was on the 11th annual Young Comedian special, they had done... 10 of them already. They used well over 50 comics. There was nobody left. It's like doing your podcast. There's nobody left. So that Young Comedian special and the industry standard I'm getting because there's nobody left. Okay. So the Johnny Carson show, I always wanted like everybody. I mean, that was, you know, when people started doing Letterman or Leno, you know, it wasn't as big of a deal because it wasn't like the Johnny Carson show. That was the best, biggest and best. I always wanted to get on. And Jim McCauley, the booker, always liked me. I always thought it was a little too dirty for the show. He came up to see a show at the other cafe in San Francisco and like 10 of us auditioned for him. And Jim goes, you're definitely going to get the show. You got the show. But I want you to come down next week to LA, to my office, and do the set in front of me. That was a notorious thing. To stand and do your set with you and your manager in front of a guy's desk, try to make him laugh, you know, it's kind of hard. Came down, did my set. McCall goes, it's really good. I go, okay, so I got the show. He goes, you know what? I want to see you next week do the show. Do it at the improv. Now, all my friends had done it. Dana Carvey, Kevin Pollock, they had all done it 10, 20 times. You know, every comic in the business. This is about 1990, early 90s. Finally get the Johnny Carson show. So Jim McCauley comes to see me at the improv. I do my set, because that's great. We're going to give you a date really, really soon. They call a few days later, and they said, we'd like you to do it next week with John Davidson. I said, I don't want to do it with John Davidson. I've waited my whole life to do the Johnny Carson show. I don't want to do it with the guest host. I want to wait for Johnny. I'm not doing it with John Davidson. So they called back a day later. He goes, oh, by the way, we thought Johnny was not going to be here next week. He's going to be. We'd like you to do it next week. I said, great. Every night I went to Igby's, went to the Comedy Magic, went to the Improv. Went, and I, I made sure I had that five minutes down. Even doing my stand-up, I, I did it back and forth. I wrote it down. I want to make sure if there was an earthquake in the middle of my set and a light fell and somebody had a heart attack, I wasn't going to forget my act. And I knew my act. The night before I do The Tonight Show, Don Rickles is on the show and does some Asian joke. And I love Rickles. But it wasn't funny and it didn't get a laugh. This Don Rickles. Now, Jim McCauley calls me the next morning. And says, because I'm opening up with an Asian joke. He calls me the next morning and says, you know, did you see Rickles last night? I said, yeah. He goes, he opened it with an Asian joke. It didn't work. Maybe you shouldn't do your Asian joke. I said, are you crazy? This is the greatest joke. Just because he did a joke that sucked. Doesn't mean, are you, I've rehearsed this. It's down to the, down to the, I know it's exactly six minutes. I know this. Why would you not want me to do the joke? You saw the joke. It's going to fucking kill. He goes, you're right. You're right. And I did it and it killed. And my wife was standing behind the producer. What was the joke? The joke was, and of course this doesn't hold, it doesn't really work anymore because things have changed with recycling. Okay. But the joke was, okay, I'm trying to remember. I got a speeding ticket. I'm trying to remember the opening. 
the punchline was, uh, I got cut off on the on, 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 on the on the freeway and the highway because some Asian guy named I think it was his name did a U-turn on the road because he, he thought he saw a recyclable aluminum can on the other side of the highway. Because back then, I guess Asian people were recycling, not homeless people. Some guy named saw a recyclable aluminum can on the other side of the road. And I remember Pat Oswald came in to do a guest set a few months ago. I was at the punchline, and I brought him on. He goes, he goes I'll never forget that joke. He goes, some guy named <laughs> you know, because no vowel was the name. I, I don't know. The joke was better when I did it. Anyway, my wife was standing behind Freddie de Cordova, was bowled over and laughed, right? And looking at Freddie DeCore for the was, was the, the famous producer of the producer show. Of the show. And my wife said, Johnny Carson was laughing so hard, he had his tie in his mouth. And I couldn't look. I wasn't looking at him. I was just looking at the audience. And I did an ad lib. You know, my wife doesn't like to joke. Too bad. I'm doing it anyway. And I, I, I guess I could hear Johnny dying over there. Thought maybe he'd call me over, but he didn't. I'll tell you what I was worried about. The late Harry Anderson. He only called six people over in 30 years. Well. On their yeah, first appearance. Really, I, there were, you know, people like, you know, just very quirky, odd comics. I know, but only six comics in 30 years That's got amazing. called at the Night Show Couch in their first appearance. So. That's amazing. And I heard Lenny Schultz walked over and sat down. The crazy Lenny. <laughs> yeah. Was it about to walk down and sat down anyway? Yeah. Uh, so what happened? Oh, oh, no, no. But right before I went on, Harry Anderson from Night Court, who was a great comic magician, went on and go, great, I have to follow Harry Anderson. And Harry's passed away. Harry was fine, but I thought he would. He didn't kill, which is great. He was entertained. But he was on the panel. He was because he, he was on Night right before me. Yeah. When you put a comedian, magician up before me, I think he's going to blow the roof off the place. And Harry was just very entertaining. Nothing. So it set it up great. So Johnny brought me on, did the show, walked off. They had the cocktail backstage. I got like five phone calls, you know. Um, you know, not a lot of people called. You know, it was nice. Bud Freeman and Mark Lana, who owns the improv, owned the improv, sent a bottle of champagne to the restaurant I was going to. At the last minute, I decided to go to a different restaurant. And they said, we freaked out trying to find out where you were going so we could send the champagne, which they did, which was very, very nice of them. And then I think Bud sent me a bill for the champagne. <laughs> Uh, sounds like something you would do but anyway um, anyway no no so I got a few calls nobody called so um, Macaulay calls me the next day says Johnny loved you we'd like to have you back on the show very soon and I put together my next set I had another set put together and a few days after that Johnny announced his retirement so I'm stepping down in a year and I called Macaulay and I said when, am I, when, when can I get back on the show he says to me I'm not sure you'll ever get back on the show. Johnny's got a year, and everybody, from the lady who saw faces on potato chips to Bette Midler, the, I mean, every, every, every athlete, every celebrity, everybody's ever been on is trying to get back on the Tonight Show. You know, so I never got to go back on because Johnny announced his retirement. And even though a year seems like a lot of time, you got to remember, in one year, Johnny has four months of vacations, wasn't working Mondays, so there wasn't that many shows. You know what I mean? Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. My biggest disappointment is always my latest project, so that would be this. My <laughs> biggest disappointment. <laughs> Until I do another stupid podcast that nobody listens to. This is my, definitely my biggest disappointment. You yeah. don't do that many podcasts. Oh, wait. My biggest disappointment in show business? My biggest disappointment? Yes. Um, my biggest disappointment was definitely when... The pilots I did, all of them, there's only three or four. The TV pilots. TV pilots, I hear the phone now, is when they did not get picked up. 
You know, I did a couple of great, I did one for Amy Heckerling, that Barnett Kelman, who did a lot of Bad About You, is a great, great pedigree. Amy Heckerling, the producer, Clueless, a great, um, that, um, um, so when that didn't get picked up, that pilot, I'm sure, was going to go. And whoever was running the network at the time stepped down. But Amy, you know, um, that was a disappointment. I was a voice of the Pink Panther in an animated, in a show that nobody saw. That uh, pilot, they should have got picked up. It was with Terry Hatcher and a guy named uh, Charlie Schlatter. That never got picked up. So I think my biggest disappointment, and I was never on the David Letterman show. David was mad at me. That could have been my, my biggest disappointment. Letterman was mad at me over something that never happened, which I don't want to get into, but he held a grudge for years. What do you mean you don't want to get into it? It was just something stupid. How come you didn't clean it up? I tried to, and, and Letterman wouldn't hear of it. I, I'll tell you what the story was. Um, when he first came on, well, before he had the show, Letterman was hosting The Tonight Show. And he did a joke of mine in the, mo- in the monologue. And it was a joke that my friend David Castro, who wrote The Guy Show, me, a joke that he wrote. You know, back then, I think comedians, and I didn't have a lot of material, you're very protective of your jokes. You know, Leno, I, I remember when I moved down here, I had a couple of jokes, and I went to the comedy store, and there was the comics, like, Jay Leno does that joke. And I didn't even know who Jay Leno was. When I finally met Leno, I go, people are accusing me of taking your act. And Jay goes, I know you didn't take it. I go, I didn't even know you were. He goes, just keep doing the joke. I'll write new stuff. People came up, you know, I learned that later that, you know, people take stuff. I think every comedian's done it maybe subconsciously. You come up with similar premises. It's happened to everybody. But he does a joke of mine. And the joke was, and it doesn't, it's not so funny now, but there's so many crazy people in LA. I saw a bumper sticker that said, Hawk, if you are Jesus. <laughs> Great joke. Became a bumper sticker. A few comics did it. David wrote that for me. Letterman did it one night on The Tonight Show. And I see David Letterman. I just met him a few times. I see him one night at the improv. And I said, David, I just want to know who wrote that joke for you? And it gets back to you know, dressing young comic. And I guess according to Tom Driesen or, or George Miller, David thought I attacked him and thought I was accusing him of stealing the joke. And I saw him a few months later. I go, David, I wasn't, I just want to know who wrote the joke for you because I think they took it from me. I just want to know who this asshole was. And for some reason, over the years, David thought, that I would see him all the time and accuse him of stealing jokes. Never happened. <laughs> it just never happened. So Leno says to me, you know, I mentioned something to Letterman, and he goes, you know what you should do? He goes, you should write a little note to Bob Morton, who I knew, the producer of the show. Of course, the executive And tell producer. Morty what happened, and tell him, explain it to him, and let him go to Letterman. And then Letterman found out, according to people on the show, that I was writing to Morty, trying to get on the show behind his back. Then Letterman had a baby, and I sent him a box of Cuban cigars, never heard back from him. And anyway, I just never got on the show. And that was the end of that. And then years later, you know, Eddie Brill said, mentioned something to Letterman. Letterman didn't remember it, but just never got on. And that was the end of it. And I always wanted to be on the Letterman show. I always wanted, you know what I really wanted? I really wanted um, to be, uh, what's his name? Um, um, I'm gonna get my mind's going blank. Who's the guy that did all the covers of Playbill? The uh, did all the caricatures. I have one of his Elvises downstairs. Hirschfeld. Yeah. Yeah. I always wanted Hirschfeld to do me, and you could pay Hirschfeld to do you. But I wanted a Hirschfeld TV guide. You know, I wanted a, a Hirschfeld line drawing, but I wanted a legitimate one because of something I did. But so that's fast. That was never gonna happen. So those are my pipe dreams that never happened. Last question: What advice do you have for the young person growing up in a small town? Driving across country, not even having the idea of what they're going to do. My John Cougar Mellencamp? <laughs> <laughs> and to figure it out and, and have the kind of amazing career that you've had. Really? Well, what advice? You know, people ask me all the time. What, you know, I always get these emails. 
You won't, hey, I'm Bobby, I'm just starting to do stand-up. Can you give me any advice? No, I can't give you any advice because what happened to me, I was in the right place at the right time when it came to stand-up, you know, in San Francisco. There's a comedy scene starting. There weren't that many people doing it. John Fox was nice enough to use me as a house MC at the punchline. I got to open up for, you know, all these great comics, like Elaine Boozler and George Miller and Jerry Seinfeld, um, Larry Miller, um, whoever, Michael Keaton, Bruce Baum, Denny Johnston, a lot of, so I, I would get to see how people worked. Kibadada, you know, I, I got to see the different styles of comics. You got to watch a lot of comics do an hour, how they did it every night, and then I got to do it. <clears throat> so I would tell young comics, the only advice I have for you is get up and do it all the time, but I don't know if you can do that. I hear now they have open mic nights at laundromats and at recycling centers, and I, I don't know where the hell to do stand-up. I don't know what you tell people. You know, I, I have no idea how to get out at the improv, how to get out at the comedy store. I don't know if you still line up on a Monday night for four hours and do three minutes. Is anybody ever going to see that? I think now it's impossible. You know? But I, I don't know. What, what, what would you say? That, what, what if they said that to you? I'm driving cross country. I want to become a comic. Look, okay, you take acting classes, but, and, then, and then what? How do you get an agent? How do you get a manager? There are too many people doing it, right? What about in terms of just the work ethic of becoming somebody successful in this business? Well, look, I think the work ethic is like any other job. I think your work ethic is the same work ethic you have when you work at Starbucks. You show up on time, you do your job, right? You're nice to the customers, you're nice to your fellow employees, you say please and thank you, and you do your job best you can, and hopefully become manager. I think show business the same way once you get in, you know? But then again, you know what? Every show I've ever worked on, I was nice to everybody. Um, you know, I, I, I can't tell you how many times, because there's so many assholes in this business that, um, I remember one of the Dream Girls and the director, oh my God, I know him so well, my mind's going blank. I did one or two, one, one scene in Dream Girls, and I got there a half an hour early. And they asked me if I could come to the stage and maybe just block the scene and go over it because they're waiting for either Eddie Murphy or Jamie Foxx. And they just, I'm there a half hour early. They said, Bobby, you're not, you're not here till nine o'clock. Do you mind? You know, you're not signed until nine. You mind coming by? And I go, why would I mind coming by? What else do I got to do? You know? And they said, well, we'll give you a ride over. I go, the stage is right there. I can walk over. You sure you want to walk that far? It's fine. You know, and what I get from this, and this happens all the time, that there's so many assholes in show business, you know? <clears throat> and then there's big stars over here are just great guys. You know, I've worked with Billy Bob Thornton. You hear that George Clooney's a dream to work with, and this guy's a dream. But you know what they're doing their job? They're saying, please, thank you. They're tipping people, whatever they do. But there's so many fucking assholes. You always hear my, but that's what I do when I'm in the makeup chair. I always say to the makeup people, who's the biggest asshole you work with? Oh, you know, George Clooney's a great guy. Oh, you know, Schwarzenegger, we did Terminator. He couldn't have been nicer. I go, I don't want to hear who's nice. Ray Romano, oh, he bought everybody a gift. I don't want to, I, I want to hear who's an asshole. And then you'd hear, oh, Steven Seagal, you know, had to take, had to get a limo from the dressing room 12 feet away with an umbrella, even though it wasn't raining. And then you're just douchebags, fucking douchebags. I don't care how big you are. Your shit don't stink, you piece of crap. So, what was your question? <laughs> <laughs> just be nice. But every show I've ever done, you know, I've, it's always, they've always liked working with me. I, I've never had a problem. I know my lines. I, I'm, I'm there on time. And I do what I got to do. Awesome. Bobby, you mind if we comb your hair this way? Do whatever the fuck you want with my hair. What do I give a shit? What do I care? Whatever you want to do. Well, for Joey Bishop, we'd have to cut your hair off. Give me a bald wig. I don't care. I'm like, where am I going? 
I'm married. I'm not getting laid. I'm not doing anything else. Where am I going? Do whatever the fuck you got to do to me. If I do this show, I'll do anything. Thank you. And thank you, Corky, for putting up with me. Bob, I dedicate the show to you. Bob, it's been amazing. Thank you so much for inviting me in your house. I really appreciate it. Am I done? Thank you. Good night. Bobby Slade, Pitbull of Comedy. Okay. Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Cool PR Maven, May 15th, 2019. Heading reads every episode as a winner, five stars. They wrote, Barry has a sense of curiosity that benefits the listener. He drills deep and unearths insights, info, and perspectives not found elsewhere. Plus, he clearly has a vast Rolodex because his guests run deep, from headliners to producers and more. My faves are his interviews with comedians, and when I die, I want Barry to write my obituary because his introductions put federal dossiers to shame. <laughs> Pick an interview with someone you admire, and it will be the best podcast listening experience ever. Man, thank you so much, cool PR maven. You are a winner. As you know, I was fortunate enough to do a documentary surrounding the only living person to ever admit to killing JFK from the grassy knoll. This is a guy who spent 50 years in prison, just got out. We have exclusive footage of his interview and over 20 different interviews, along with interviews with five of the greatest JFK assassination experts in the world. Once you watch these videos, your perception of the world and what happened that day will change forever. It's incredible. Just go to ikilljfk.com. You can pick up the documentary I Killed JFK and the rare interviews of five of the greatest JFK assassination experts in the world. I guarantee you, once you watch this footage, you will be blown away. To quote one of the experts in the film, when Trump said he wanted to drain the swamp, what do you think's at the bottom of the swamp? ikilljfk.com check it out and here's a preview of the next very special episode dan soder chase what you love but chase something that you're going to be comfortable being honest with as far as failures and and where you where you lack and, and where you're weak you, you can't be scared of that embrace that read the book talent is overrated read the book the war of art go to therapy read alan watts <laughs> uh understand that it, this this existence is just it's what you make of it and so pain you can't know happiness without knowing pain so if you're going through pain know that this is just a moment for you to have an upswing that's way better than anything you could possibly imagine As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money, drop there.
that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.